Today we're going to jump back into the book of Revelation. You guys that are here for the first time, you are jumping right into the thick of Revelation. So welcome to Alliance Fellowship. (laughs) Uh, Because we are jumping straight today into the seven bolts of God's wrath. (laughs) So it's a good first day for you. So, let's pray that God would open his word to us. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for this vision that you gave to John the Revelator, and I pray that we would be open to what you have to show us today through your love, through even your wrath. God, would you help us to understand you better and to seek you more diligently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we have spent most of 2022 looking at the book of Revelation. Last time that I was with you, we were in Revelation chapter 14. If you have a Bible or a device, you could open up to Revelation 15. It'll be on the screen as well. But 14 speaks about these angels who are proclaiming the gospel throughout all of the earth. It literally says that God tells these angels, it's the first time in all of the scriptures that angels are the ones proclaiming the gospel, and it's at the very end of time. And so they're flying around, and so this question that people ask, well, what about those who have never heard? Revelation tells us at the end, there will be nobody who hasn't heard. There will literally be angels flying around the earth telling people the gospel. And that's pretty amazing. And then 14 ends by talking about this amazing harvest that there will be at the end of the age, that Jesus will come in the clouds and he will pull out his sickle and harvest all of the people who have come to know him through this tribulation time. And then there will be a harvest of the grapes of wrath. And that's a whole other thing. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to, to catch up with it. But that's where we're at today. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 15 and 16. And we will see the wrath of God on full display as we read about the seven bowls of God's wrath, or if you have an older version of the Bible, it might say vials. But bowls is a better interpretation of the language. And seven bowls, and this will be our third set of sevens. If you've ever wondered why seven is such an important number in the Bible, it's the number of completion. And over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, we see this number seven. And this is our third set of seven. If you've been with us through the whole book of Revelation, there were seven seals that sealed this document that led to the fullness of God's kingdom. Those seven seals lead to seven trumpet judgments, which we've talked about. And then those seven trumpet judgments lead us here to the seven bowl judgments. And so if you've wondered why the number of the beast is 666, it it could be that that's always falling short of God's number, which is 777. We have all these sevens. And so you're going to see that there's a lot of similarities between the trumpet judgments, if you were with us, and these bowl judgments, except for that the trumpet judgments were localized a little bit. They, they would only affect a part of something or, or affect it a little bit where these bowls are complete. They are total judgments. And the imagery of these bowls, I want you to understand, is, is not a big, huge bowl, but a, a shallow saucer. So don't imagine a bowl that's slowly pouring out. Imagine the shallow saucer where everything just pops out at the same time. The, the full wrath of God pours out in a moment. Chapter 15 is basically a setup for chapter 16. And so I want to read chapter 15 together. It's a short chapter. It's on the screen or you might have it in your hands, hopefully. 
Chapter 15 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of the witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we have John the Revelator. He's receiving yet another vision in this whole series of visions throughout the book of Revelation, he has another vision. And in this vision, he gets to see a little glimpse into heaven again, and he sees these angels with plagues, and somehow he knows that these plagues are the end. He knows this is the fullness, this is the completeness of everything. He sees a sea of glass, which he had described earlier in Revelation chapter 4. There's a sea of glass, but now the sea of glass is mingled with fire. And I think that shows us it's a time of judgment. It is coming to the end. And so the glass is with fire. And amongst that sea of glass, he sees those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with the harps of God in their hands. I believe these are the tribulation saints, those who have come to know the Lord through this time of the tribulation. And now they're, they have given their lives because they refuse to give in to the beast. They refuse to give in to the Antichrist. And so now they are with God. And it says that they are holding harps, which in the Bible is a sign of joy and worship. But don't worry, if you're like me, you often think, like, is that all we're going to do in heaven? It's like stand around with harps all the time? No. There's going to be a lot more. I don't know all of it, but I know it's not just going to be like harping all the time. Because that sounds... <laughs> Awful to me. Not into the harp thing. But there's going to be a lot more to it. They're singing a song of praise to God. And it's a similar song as the ones that Moses would sing to God when he led Israel, singing thousands of years ago. There was the song of praise when God parted the Red Sea so that Israel could flee from Pharaoh. And Moses leads them in a song of praise. There was a song of praise when God provided water in the desert when they were thirsty. Moses is a songwriter. We don't think about that part of Moses, but he writes these songs of praise to God. And this is a similar song. And then there's also the song of the Lamb, which was earlier in Revelation 5, where all of heaven sings about the worthiness of Jesus alone. And like those songs, here we have this song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. 
All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. They're taking a moment just to sing the praises of the goodness of God. That hit me this morning as we were singing that song that I've sung a hundred times before. It's your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise. I, just, I don't know if I've ever really even thought about that song on a deep level. Of like, It is literally the breath of God that resides in me. and So I should be using that breath to pour out praise to him. And this is exactly what they are doing. They're pouring out praise. But then John sees, and he describes for us, these seven angels that are coming out of the sanctuary, the, the holy of holies in the, in the tabernacle. And they're dressed somewhat like priests, but pure and bright. <clears throat> and as they come out of the sanctuary, one of the living creatures, do you remember these creatures who are like almost beyond description? We try to understand they got animals and they got wings and all kinds of, and eyes, like they're crazy looking. Somehow, one of these creatures give the bowls to the angels, and then there's smoke filling the sanctuary. It's the very glory of God. And now we come to chapter 16 as these angels begin to pour out the bowls. And verse 1 of chapter 16 tells us that a voice comes from heaven, probably the voice of God Himself. And he tells the angels, <coughs> go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath. Now instead of just reading straight through this chapter, I want to take this step by step. And so you can track with me as I go. But each of these bowls, this is important, each bowl has a specific target and a, and a, specific, a specific result of what's going to happen from it. And so it starts with the first bowl, verse 2 of chapter 16. <clears throat> the first bowl is poured out. And it's poured out over the earth. That's the target, the earth. And its result is harmful and painful sores that afflict people who bear the mark of the beast and have worshipped his image. Now this plague is worldwide and it's affecting all of those who have taken the mark of the beast, who have turned away from God and turned towards the Antichrist. And it harkens back to the story from the Old Testament of Egypt, the sixth plague that was against Egypt and against Pharaoh, when Pharaoh would not release God's people. And it also reminds us of the book of Job, when Satan struck Job with loathsome sores all over his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Now imagine this, everyone just covered in these horrendous sores. And as we go through these bowls, remember these things are building upon each other. So it's not just one at a time, one hits and then another and another. And you can kind of imagine it as you go through life and you're like, this is the last straw. Right? These things are building upon each other. And so bowl one is released <coughs> and there's just these sores. Bowl two is in verse 3. And this one is poured out on the sea, on the salt water of the earth. And this bowl turns all of the oceans into blood, like that of a corpse. And everything that lived in the oceans died. The third bowl is very similar to the second, but it is poured out over the rivers and springs, so all of the fresh water of the earth turns to blood. And these two plagues together mean there's no more water on earth. And without water, we can't survive. 
There is nothing without water. And just imagine, not to be grotesque, but imagine the stench, the putrefying stench of an ocean of blood that is coagulating and full of billions of dead sea and water animals. So you add these sores, and now all of the water is gone, and its stench is all over the earth. And then here's an interesting brief pause. After these two bowls of wrath against the water, it says that there was an angel in charge of the waters, and this angel declares God's righteousness in doing what he's doing. It's interesting that there's an angel in charge of the waters. And it's also interesting that this angel is coming to the defense of God, as if God needs defense. But he's saying, this is just. Because we might read this and say, God, isn't that a little harsh? Isn't that a little hardcore? (coughs) And the angel says, they deserve it. Because they have spilt the blood of the saints and the martyrs. And right here, it brings to mind earlier in Revelation when the voice of the martyrs is under the altar in heaven and they cry out, How long, O Lord, until you will avenge our deaths? And it reminds me of what's going on in the world right now and so many people are crying out, How long, O Lord, can this continue? And these plagues, as much as they feel like they are just awful, they are the fulfillments of the prayers of God's people for generations. How long, O Lord, will you allow this to continue? And God finally says, enough. And He begins to pour out His wrath upon a broken and sinful world. Because we know that it's true that you will reap what you sow. Every thought process in the world has some idea of that. They call it karma. They call it whatever they want to call it. But the truth is, what you plant, you will sow. And people are receiving what they deserve for their actions. The fourth bowl is poured out in verse 8. And its target is not actually on the earth. Its target is the sun. And it says that something happens to the sun that allows it to scorch the people of earth with fire. This is interesting to me because back in the seven trumpet judgments, one third of the sun stopped shining. We don't know exactly what that means, but somehow one third of the sun's light stopped shining. And now that we're in these judgments, somehow the sun gets supercharged or goes supernova and starts shining so brightly and intensely on the world that people are scorched with fire. And yet it tells us in this section, even then, the people refuse to repent and give glory to God. It says they know that it's God's power that's doing all this. (coughs) So they acknowledge His power, but refuse to give Him glory and refuse to repent from what they're doing. The fifth bowl is poured out in verse 10. And this one has a target It's a little harder to understand. It says it's targeted at the throne of the beast. We don't know exactly what that means. It could be the physical location where the Antichrist has set up his shop 
It could be the earth itself because the earth has become the kingdom of the Antichrist at this point. It's his kingdom, but in any case, this plague plunges the entire world into darkness. Both the Old Testament prophets Zephaniah and Joel spoke about the end of days and they said that they would be a day of darkness and gloom. Thousands of years before this. Jesus himself said in his Olivet Discourse, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So imagine now as these things build upon themselves, people are covered in sores. There's no water. The stench, the sun has stopped giving light. There's utter darkness. Like This world is becoming an absolute dystopian nightmare. And people are still saying, no, we refuse to give glory to God. This section actually says that people nod their tongues in anguish. You can imagine, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you literally bite your tongue to try to forget some other type of pain. They're doing this to where they're gnawing their tongues to try to get away from the constant pain and darkness. The sixth bowl is poured out in verse 12, and it's poured directly upon the river Euphrates, which is in modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. It's said that the Euphrates will dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now this one is super interesting to me because this is actually happening right now. I have a slide. Iraq could have no rivers by 2040, government report warns. You can look this up on Google. Right now, as we speak, and all the way back 20 years, the Euphrates River is drying up. I have no idea if this is the drying up that's going to happen, but it is currently happening. One of the mighty rivers of Asia is drying, and they can't do anything about it. And so it's one of those signs you kind of look at, like, God, is, is that? Is that what's happening? I don't know. But it's very interesting. And it says that the kings of the east will come through that dry riverbed, speaking of the world leaders that are going to come from all over the place and descend upon Israel. This part we need to read to kind of grasp onto. If you have your Bible, chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, so that's that unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs, I had to read that a few times. I was like, frogs? I didn't know frogs were evil, but they're gross. So, anyways. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So John sees in this vision now that there are demonic forces, and I don't think they literally looked like frogs. I think the point is frogs were an unclean animal to the Jewish people, and they were slimy and cold-blooded and all kinds of gross things. And so he says, ah, they're like frogs. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you're like, frogs are cute. You're crazy. <clears throat> but he says they're like frogs, and they're these demonic 
forces and they're going out from this unholy trinity and they're manipulating the world's leaders into coming to this one place for this final battle. And these people all think that it's their idea to descend upon Israel, but it's all part of God's plan. Armageddon is not just a sweet 90s movie with Bruce Willis. <clears throat> Armageddon is a place. It's also called Megiddo in Hebrew, or Har Megiddo. It's a place in northern Israel. I think I have a slide picture of it. That is the field of Megiddo. You can travel to that today. It's a massive tell or mound that is been the location of, they say, over 200 battles in world history that we know of. It's where, if you remember back when we went through the book of Judges, this is where Deborah and Barak fought Sisera in Judges chapter 5. It's where Saul battled the Philistines and lost his life. It's where Solomon battled Pharaoh Shishak in 2 Chronicles. It's where Josiah battled Pharaoh in 2 Kings 23. Four major battles of the Crusades in the 12th century took place here. Napoleon Bonaparte battled the Ottomans in 1799 on this field, and he actually said that this is the most natural battleground on the whole earth. And in World War I, the Allied forces battled the Ottoman Turks in 1918. That's just some of many, many battles that have taken place in this location. And the Bible tells us that this will be the location of the final battle. It will be the location of God's complete destruction over evil and sin. It's interesting, I've used the word battle a couple times, but it's, the Bible never actually calls it the final battle because it's not going to be much of a battle. It's a slaughter, really. Because God is all-powerful. And so all of His enemies come and, and they gather on this field and it's almost like the Tower of Babel where men thought we can go to war against God. They all think we can go to war against God and they come and God lays waste to sin. God's full wrath towards a broken sinful world that has been withheld for so long will utterly and completely annihilate His enemies. And all of this is setting up this final crescendo of the story of creation. But there's one more bowl to be poured out. And as I read this, <coughs> if you're like me, you like movies. I picture this as a movie. I can't help it. Like This is like Gladiator or something like that. Action movie. And imagine in your mind's eye, the, the armies of the world are coming from every direction. And they're coming to Israel. And they're coming to Megiddo. To Armageddon. And you can imagine that the, the sky is scorched like the, in the matrix. And everyone's got sores and there's no water and everything is just dystopian and broken. And this battle's about to take place. And then in verse 17, the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl. And in my, I don't know if it's this way, but in my head, everyone's there. And then the seventh bowl gets poured out. And this bowl, it's interesting, the target says that it is poured out in the air. Think about that. That's, that's everything. It's not just the earth. It's not just the water. It's not the sun. The air is everywhere. So this plague is poured out in the air. 
And then at that moment, a loud voice comes from the temple, from the throne of God, saying, it is done. This is an epic moment in my movie. Everyone's around, the bowl gets poured out, and then a voice from heaven, it is done. It's reminiscent of Jesus on the cross proclaiming, it is finished. Jesus had completed the task of bringing the hope of salvation to the world, and now God is completing the task of pouring his wrath out upon a world that has turned against him. And what are the results of this bowl? Picture again this movie, and read with me verses 18 through 21 of chapter 16. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from the heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Imagine all of these people and then these, this plague hits and it's like nothing the world has ever seen. Lightning and thunder and rumblings and an earthquake like nobody has ever seen before. I don't know if you've actually been in an earthquake. I grew up in Southern California. I remember the first time I ever felt like an earthquake and I didn't know what it was and I was freaking out. I was like six years old and the whole earth started shaking, and that's weird. My grandmother had to tell me what was happening. Now imagine that times a hundred. <clears throat> An earthquake so large that the city of Jerusalem splits into three sections. Mountains fall, nations fall, islands disappear into the ocean. This is unlike anything we can possibly imagine. And on top of that, oh, it's hailing. 100 pound stones from the sky. But this isn't a film. It's not a movie. This is what God tells us will happen at the end of times. That those who have turned towards the beast, those who have taken the side of Satan, those who have turned away from God and cursed his name over and over and over again, will endure these things. Not because God wants to destroy people. He is constantly trying to pull them towards repentance. You know what the most amazing thing about this story is to me? It's the patience of God. I know this is a whole story about the wrath of God how terrible the wrath of God is towards sin and darkness and destruction. I know that. But as I read this, I'm struck again by the patience of God. Because that wrath has been stayed for thousands of years as people have continuously destroyed one another and creation itself. And God has allowed that to continue on to give space for repentance and for people to come back to him. God was patient through Adam and Eve doing exactly the opposite of what he asked them to do. 
He was patient through Israel being unfaithful to Him as their God over and over and over again. He was patient even when the world murdered His own Son. He has been patient for a couple thousand years since then as the Gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection has been spreading throughout the world and giving people the opportunity to repent. But there will come a day when the bowl of God's wrath reaches its brim. And he says, enough. N.T. Wright says there's two ways that God expresses His wrath. The first is that He allows human wickedness to rule. He allows us to destroy each other. But then eventually, the second will come, is that He will step in and He will say, that's enough. But then, even then, think about the patience of God, even when He finally says, that's enough. Even then, as we've read through Revelation, He sends 144,000 evangelists in the world to tell the tell people that they can be saved by Jesus. He gives two witnesses from heaven to come and speak the truth into the world. When even that doesn't work, he literally sends angels to just fly over the sky being like, hey, God loves you. Turn. Repent. His patience is incredible, and even once he says it is time for this to be done, he still is sending the Gospel into the world to save people. The same is true in my life. As I look at my life, I am amazed at the patience of God. No matter how long it takes me to learn the same lessons that God is trying to teach me over and over again, He's patient. No matter how many times I struggle with the same sinful desires or actions, He's patient. No matter how many times I fail to be the man that I want to be, that God has made me to be, He is patient. Loving me, guiding me, continuing to be with me. And I bet that many of you would say the same is true in your life. God would have been just and righteous to just lay waste to the world a long time ago. I would have. God would have been just and righteous to get rid of me a long time ago. I probably would have done that too. But in His mercy and His grace and His love, we see that He is so patient. And He's patient because it's His desire. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any shall perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires to save us. And if you know Him today, you need to give Him the glory that is His due. To understand that He is so good, that He is so patient, but that He is just and righteous. And there will come a time where He says, enough. If you don't know Him today, then please listen to the words of Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. God, I pray that You would 
make yourself so clearly known to us today. As you have again and again, you have been so patient in our lives. And we look at this story and it's so easy to just, to just think like, oh man, that's so, that's so harsh. But we reap what we sow, Lord. And those who are there in those days, they have, they have shed the blood of the innocent and martyrs and saints and they have just continued to curse you and fight against you and so they reap what they sow. So God, let us understand that you are just and good. Let us understand that there are times when you will step into our lives and chastise us for our own good. Let us give you the glory that you were due. And if there's anybody in here that doesn't know your goodness and your patience and love and mercy yet today, God, would you pull them closer to you today?